Thank you. Okay, so we're uh, we're still in Hebrews, and uh, when you are a uh, sort of part-time teacher, it's nice to have a break like we had last week, thanks to uh, Cam. But there's a danger to that as well <clears throat> when you're a new teacher, is that there's like three versions of this lesson laying on my kitchen table now. So uh, hopefully I picked the right one uh, here this morning. So uh, if you recall uh, from a couple of weeks ago, we've, you know, we've had a couple of breaks, so it's good, I think, to always revisit the theme of the text, right? So the, the, uh, the letter as a whole, the book of Hebrews, we have two themes running tightly together through the entire piece, and, and that is Jesus as ultimate Savior and Keeper of Salvation, and the importance of holding on to him for our salvation. And that, uh, that certainly today's lesson will tie into that. A couple of weeks ago, you may recall, uh, we looked at Moses and the example of a great leader of a nation and the author of Hebrews reminding us that for all of Moses's greatness as a leader, uh, he was just a player in a story that was about Jesus. And, uh, and so I'll, uh, I'll go back to verse 5 and then and continue reading 7 through 19. So in verse 5, <clears throat> just to kind of tie this in, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. <clears throat> so he says, uh, we must hold on to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then, therefore, verse 7, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they will always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Okay, so there's a main idea in this text, and that is that Israel was denied rest with God in the promised land because they presumed on God's patience and had their hearts hardened by sin. Exhort and encourage one another to hold firmly to your confession until the end, 
so your sinful heart will not lead you away from faith in God. Okay, so it's a mouthful. Took up half the board, but it's there in case you want to reference that. So uh, as I see it, there's two halves to this text. There's two big points, and then each of these points has two supporting points. So point number one, big mistake, huge, a cautionary tale, okay? And, uh, and the second point, the second half of the text, we are commanded to endure, and so uh, through this text, you will sense, if you look at the language, there's a sense of urgency. There's, the, there's phrases like today, if you hear his voice and so on. So this carries through the text. But there, uh, before I get into that, there's a podcast on our website. Maybe Dan put that uh, up there from Al Mohler that says, When the Bible Speaks, God Speaks. I think that's a new addition to our, uh, our front page. And the writer of Hebrews tells us the same thing here in verse 7. It has to be pointed out that Scripture is from God himself. It is living and active. Uh, The first quote there, the Holy Spirit says, is in present tense. So the Holy Spirit is saying this to you today, uh, and we should uh, take heed to that. So the writer begins the main point of his argument from Psalm 95, 7 through 11. Psalm 95 warns God's people not to harden their hearts and turn away from the God who saved them. This is in stark contrast to the faith shown by Moses. This is exactly what Israel did after deliverance out of Egypt, soon after their rescue. They began to murmur and complain. They said they would be so much happier with slavery in Europe, if you recall. It's around Numbers 10 where, uh, you know, Moses uh, comes back with the law and then things go downhill for uh, the hearts of the Israelites. They grew discontent with the Lord. They longed for the sure thing of life in Egypt, the Israelites were faithless. Why? It was easier than following God. The author presses uh, the today to his audience with a sense of urgency. There's urgency throughout this text. The urgency still exists today. Today is the day to turn from your sin of unbelief, And the phrase, if you hear his voice, is important, I think. Resting in God's promises depends on hearing and heeding his word. God speaks to save his people. That God speaks to save his people is an act of grace. Okay? So, the Israelites, what they did, if we want to look at my artwork here. You know, so we've got... We've got the Israelites here cruising through the, uh, the wilderness on the other side of the, uh, uh, of the escape from the Egyptian soldiers. You know, we talked about this. Just, just before the Israelites escaped, just, just remember what they went through, right? So they're running out of town while the sound of the wailing of mothers over the loss of their firstborn, right? They're rushing out of town only to find the Egyptian army 
pressing up as they, uh, as they come to the Red Sea uh, on them and, uh, and they escape the waters crashing over their enemies onto new territory. And, uh, and, and shortly after receiving the Ten Commandments, they are already tired of following Yahweh who saved them. Shocking, right? So they're, so they're, they're, uh, they're off on their journey to the promises of the promised land. And instead of looking upward with their hearts, they now look and see suffering, difficulty. They don't know where their next meal is come from, coming from, uncertainty, and so on. And their hearts have already dropped their gaze from the promises of Yahweh to what they see in front of them, okay? And so uh, this is why, the, uh, why Israel failed. Now, uh, the reader or the, the hearer of this letter is dealing with, with other things like persecution, pressure to go back to the old way, and so on. And, um, you know, and so I started to think about promises that we have that uh, when things are difficult for us that we would uh, forget, uh, we would, uh, they, they would not be first on our minds. You know, I was thinking about uh, in John 4, for example, uh, eternal life to those who trust him, right? That's a promise that we have from, from Jesus. Uh, John 10, all of John 10 is about uh, Jesus being the shepherd who protects his sheep. And, uh, and he says, no one shall snatch them from my hand. That's a promise that we have uh, if we are in him. We're promised things like power in Acts. Uh, we're promised he will return. Uh, to the Corinthians, Paul promised that uh, there would be fulfillment for us in Christ. We're promised things uh, similar to this text, like rest, peace, abundant life. Okay, so so those are those are the things that the Hebrews are. Um, there, there's no evidence that they have turned from God. I, rather, this is simply a warning. But uh, but the Hebrews are being persecuted. The Hebrews are being challenged, and the writer is uh, is reminding them to keep their focus correct on the promises of God and not on the persecution that they see uh, in front of them. And so the author tells us why a generation of Israelites failed to make it into the promised land. They hardened their hearts. The Lord tested them in the wilderness in verse 8, and they crumpled up like a cheap suit. These people failed to keep their hearts oriented toward God. Rather, they trusted their own eyesight. They believed what they saw with their own eyes rather than the promise from Yahweh. They saw his great works in verse 9, and yet they still tempted his patience. They rebelled against him. They presumed upon his faithfulness. He delivered them from Egypt. He kept them alive. He provided manna for them. He guided them with a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. They responded with grumbling and complaining against the Lord and Moses. 
they presumed upon the Lord's grace. <clears throat> so what do I mean by that? They were deceived by their sin. In their sin of unbelief, the Israelites thought they could live for themselves in the wilderness all together like a big happy family. And then when the promised land was in sight, they could hop back over to God's team and go in the promised land with him. God will bail us out. That's what they did. So Israel failed to enter the rest offered to them on the other side of the Jordan in verse 11. In his wrath, God swore that they would not enter Canaan. We are talking about the promised, uh, the land promised to Abram uh, way back in Genesis 15. And this is why there is an urgency in this text. The writer knows the danger and deceitfulness of sin. It's on display here in this uh, story, this account of the Israelites. For these persecuted Christians, there is a risk they will look away from their confidence in Jesus. The writer uses this story to paint a picture for the audience receiving this letter. The rest, pictured in the land of Canaan, looks back to the perfection of Eden and points forward to the rest of the to the rest the church will find in the new creation. Rest in scripture is a metaphor for God's blessings of safety, security, and salvation. In our text, uh, in chapter 4, the writer will push further and show that uh, Jesus is our Sabbath rest. But that's for next week. Rest is not a place, but a person in Jesus Christ. Jesus is a Savior better than Moses, and we will learn he offers a rest better than Canaan ever could. The warning in these verses is serious and sobering. If you are faithless, rebellious, and unbelieving, you can expect to die on the wrong side of the Jordan. While Moses believed and held on to God's promises, the people did not. So with that setting, we are commanded as a church here in, this, uh, in the second half of this text to endure. Okay, Now, uh, there's a danger uh, of our hearts. Our hearts uh, can be sinful. And so in verses 12 through 19, the author shifts the focus from the cautionary tale of unbelieving Israel and warns his audience against falling in the, into the same unbelief. He exhorts these believers not to follow in the footsteps of those Israelites and encourages them to endure in the faith so they can enter into God's once and for all rest in the new creation. So in verse 12, he applies Psalm 95 to his audience. Israel sinned because they did not believe God. They had an evil, unbelieving heart. Unbelief puts us on a path away from God. The author wants his reader to guard his heart so that he will not end up like Israel. Uh, take care lest you have an unbelieving heart leading away from God, as he says. So how do we combat unbelieving hearts? Verse 13 provides the remedy. Encourage each other daily while it is still called today, 
Now, the author of Hebrews is doing exactly what Paul says to the Colossians. He says to admonish one another in all wisdom through psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, and singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Immersing yourself in the watchful care of the church, in the preaching of the word, and the exhortation of fellow believers is the remedy to an unbelieving heart. We must do this today. There is no guarantee of tomorrow. The church has an urgent task with great eternal significance. Sin is dangerous, and that's why this warning comes with such an urgency. See, the Israelites ran out of time. They got outside of Canaan with unrepentant, unbelieving hearts. Their time was done, right? And so we have this urgency for us, the hearer in the church, to not look away, to not fall away, to not harden your hearts, because we don't know how much time we have. The author describes an evil, unbelieving heart as a heart that has been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The Old Testament tells us a hardened heart is terminal. And so we need to uh, talk about warnings a little bit and then, uh, and then sort of finish the, the text. So I'll, uh, I'll flip this around. <clears throat> so, Petites, you might not know that uh, Joel is quite an artist, you know? He, his, uh, his circles are perfect. His, do- his doodles are perfect, right? <clears throat> so I had some help. Uh, from an artist here to uh, to uh, to show a couple of options as we just consider the warning text here. So I want to uh, give us a, a little bit of something to hold on to as we before we push to the final uh, piece. So Scripture offers promises and warnings. I suggested some promises early. Uh, a promise in Philippians: He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ, right? That's a promise that we can uh, hold on to. That's uh, Philippians 1.6. A warning is a forward-looking statement, not a retrospective statement. A warning is conditional. It's not declarative. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, here's, uh, this is an example. A warning, if you don't repent, you will die. See, there's if there, it's conditional, right? Now, to us, we hear a warning like this, you're, you've sinned and need a Savior, and we think that's a warning. That's just fact. That's a declaration. It's not an if statement, right? And so, uh, warning has a condition to it, if it is going to be a warning. Uh, if there's no condition, it's kind of too late, right? So a warning is uh, also not a rebuke. It is simply a warning. So uh, we read this text. There's, there's no rebuking happening in this text, but there is warning going on in this text. So there are, um, there are many, uh, I, I, at least several uh, interpretations of the warning passages, right? So uh, there are uh, you know, 
many people much smarter than me with, uh, with entrenched positions that are uh, different than mine and maybe different than yours. So <clears throat> I pulled uh, or tried to pull the three most widely held positions regarding warning passages. Okay, so uh, one way to interpret, interpret a warning like this is that you can lose your salvation or your rewards, right? And so, uh, so we are here, right? So you've got, uh, you've got someone saved, right? Warnings now raise doubts of, the, uh, of making it fully to salvation or receiving your reward, right? So, uh, so the warnings suggest, hey, you know, if you fall down and fail, you go to hell, and, uh, and that raises doubts to the, uh, to the believer, right, before final glory, right? So that's, that's a thing. So uh, a very common thing in our circles is the idea of I'm saved, but the warnings are there to test whether or not I'm genuine in my salvation, right? So, uh, so here's the prize, eternal life. And the, the warning is a way for us to look backward after we've been saved to test whether or not uh, we're saved. So that's a uh, possibility. Um, uh, holding fast confirms your salvation would be the, uh, that, that position, if you will, right? So if I read this and it says, hold fast to the end, and if I get to the end and I'm still hanging on, right? Oh, I was saved, right? That's that, that's that backwards looking, uh, which which I think intellectually kind of uh, falls apart a little bit. Uh, uh, we had Tom Schreiner here a few years ago. He's tall, so he's got to be uh, smart. And um, uh, his position is that the warning passage is a tool the lord uses to protect and keep his sheep right so uh, so think about this promise right the the promise that the lord who began salvation began a good work in me will bring it to completion right so i hear that and i trust the lord who saved me to get me to the finish line you see what i'm saying and Yet I've got this warning, right? So now I have to balance that. So what's the warning? If, if, if I'm not going to fail, why is the warning there? And, um, and Tom, and I, I agree with this, uh, Mr. Schreiner, uh, is that the warning is one of the means by which the Lord preserves his flock, okay? Uh, so, so you might... Uh, you, you, um, let me just give you an example. All right, so uh, my first job, I was like 15, maybe 14. I lasted two weeks, got fired. I was painting. So um, <clears throat> they put me on a church in Detroit, and I was, I was painting all of the uh, uh, window panes, you know, and the paint was everywhere, all over the brick, and uh, it, was, it was a disaster. Um, my my boss, the owner, who was a believer we went to church with, came out and started cussing at me. Um, he was so angry. So, um, 
<clears throat> yeah, so that was my first job. My second job was lasted uh, 45 minutes or something like that. Uh, and it was also paint-related, which is why I don't show up on the painting days for the church, okay? I, I said something to my wife. They're painting trim, and she says, you know what happened last time you paint trim? Don't go, okay? So... So I show up at this uh, at this place in Romulus or whatever. It's a it's a uh, factory, I guess, that makes paint. Okay, so uh, so the guy's a friend of my parents, and uh, you know took me uh, took me in, and he walks me through. We go through, and it's it's a huge warehouse with giant vats. They're probably like a thousand gallons in the floor, and we go we walk in, and the first one. There's a guy, uh, like every, everyone is, uh, is in, um, you know, the hazmat type gear with breathing apparatus and stuff like that. And there's a guy cleaning this vat and that vat. And then there's some other vats that are full that are, you know, it's a combination of chemicals they're cooking to create paint. And so as we go through, the, uh, the owner, Kevin, is like, hey, okay, so don't ever go into one of these uh, unless you're specifically told to go in one. Don't ever go in without breathing apparatus, because if you do, you'll die, okay? So don't ever think about going near these unless somebody says, put apparatus on and go in there and clean that vat or something like that, you know, as we're, so we're, we're going through. Those are warnings, right? That was grace on his part to share those with me. Now, I didn't plan on rushing into one of those vats to play around and check it out and and things like that but who knows right so who knows what he doesn't know what i'm gonna do and so uh it is important in his estimation and in mine as well that he lets me know what my risks are right if i were to uh uh do something rash or something happened i reacted and jumped into the vat to avoid getting hit by a, a high-low or something like that, I would know not to go in the vat, okay? And so these warnings are essentially the same way. Hey, there is danger if you flirt with sin, right? And the author wants us to, uh, to know that if we stop unbelieving, uh, if we stop believing in God's promises, Bad things happen to our hearts, dangerous things. And so we, uh, we have that, that urgency. So <clears throat> if I'm not going to drink the poison, why do we warn? The warnings are means by which the promises that we've been given come to pass. The warnings remind us of the consequences of sin and causes me to remember the greatness of God's grace. What an encouragement that is, right? Okay. <clears throat> Lots of stuff on the cutting room floor here. So, <clears throat> couple of thoughts. God turns hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. While we were dead in our sins and opposed to God, God brought us to life by his grace. So the danger of a hard heart is unbelief. A hard heart is a heart that can deny Jesus. Hard hearts do not recognize their need for a Savior. The author exhorts his brothers and sisters, watch out for this 
and tells us this is an urgent task for the church to be faithful to the gospel. So, uh, verse 14 in our text, he says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Our original confidence is talking about our conversion. Our first confession of faith in Christ. When God generated a stone heart by the power of the gospel. Our original confidence is in God. He begins our conversion. We have a responsibility then to persevere in our faith. And God is ultimately the one who keeps us. Yes. Yeah. But it also goes on to say that it is his good pleasure to run the work in us. Yeah. So there is a tension. It's not easy, right? We wouldn't need Sunday school teachers if it were. But there is an already not yet thing going on here through all of Scripture we see it and through our salvation that we're saved, but we're being saved. We are uh we have the promises, right? Uh and we have Jesus, but we don't have Jesus in the new creation yet. So there's this, this balance and this tension that exists, which I think creates some of this. Yeah, so I would just add, I, I, everything you said I totally agree with, Bill. Thanks for the work you put into this. Um, I, I would say that we would all agree that God saves us and keeps us saved, right? Right. Everybody, everyone in here would say amen to that, right? The, what Bill's teaching on right now is, one of the ways in which he keeps us safe. Mm-hmm. The warnings are one of those tools that he, that he uses among his people to keep us safe. Like, so, for example, I remember, um, I think your wife, Ashley, did you guys come when I was preaching in Galatians? Is that right? Do I remember that right? Because right. I, I think I remember a question from her. I was, I was teaching in Galatians 5, and at the end of Galatians 5, you got, you know, this list of... Um, of sins, right, of the works of the flesh. Um, and you got this, this just this long list, you know, envy and drunkenness and orgies, etc., right? And then Paul writes, uh, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not enter the kingdom of God. Ashley's question, does that mean you can lose your salvation? Well, that's how some people uh, interpret it. But I would say the, the, the right way is to see those warnings as one of the ways to keep people out of sin and keep them on the road of faith, right? So it's, a, it's completely appropriate for us to warn each other when we're in sin. So you see me in sin, um, you know, you can say, well, I don't want to offend him or whatever. I don't want to get into his business or that. That's one way, but that's not the way to love somebody. The way to love somebody is to confront them and say, listen, you're living in such a way that, that the, the sin that you're living in, those kind of people don't go to heaven. And what it does is it causes me, the sinner, to consider the consequence of not enduring. And that, that frightens me when I start to think in those terms, right? That's one of the ways God keeps me, keeps me on the road to salvation. The, one of the ways God <clears throat> gives me repentance and keeps me going. The, the, the warning is effective to a spiritual person. 
feel like they're may, maybe not even mutually exclusive because, and, and maybe, I, but the, because I've often thought, I mean, I, I agree with everything everybody says here, but I've often thought that, you know, there are warnings and, uh, you know, to see someone or ourselves, you know, off on this, you know, a lot of times you say, well, you know, apparently, you know, not that we're the judge, but apparently that person must not have really been saved at the beginning. So in some ways, it does feel like a test of genuineness. Yeah, uh, so yeah, I can I, see that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So when, when you're saying, gee, you know, I, I don't buy this, I, I buy this, and I'm thinking, well, you know, I, I'm not sure that they're, they, they might both be true. But right. Uh, so, can, I, can I just push back on that? Yeah. So I agree with what you just said. I would just say that that test of genuineness is found in other texts, not this one. This one's a warning. And it's and it's yeah. causes to consider what happens if you abandon the faith. There's there's plenty of those of those other ones, you know, uh, to test and see that, that that you're a Christian, right? Like First John's full of tests of genuineness, um, you know, tests. So. Yeah. So First Peter one five says, "Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to re- be revealed in the last time." The church warning each other and carrying each other on is one of the ways that the Lord preserves our salvation. So verses 15 through 18, as uh, we uh, are out of time, the author goes back to the quote from Psalms to argue for persevering in the faith. He speaks of the importance and urgency of hearing and obeying God's voice. In the wilderness, God's people committed many sins, but one sin prevented them from entering the promised land. It was the sin of unbelief. You cannot find rest with God without full faith in his salvation plan in Jesus. God's miracles were on display for 40 years to these people. Imagine his wrath as, as he provided for them like no other group of people in history and no repentance came. Uh, And it it just tied in, I thought, uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, in Matthew. Jeff was uh, uh, one one of the messages just a few weeks ago. Jesus said, uh, hey, no more miracles, right? One more miracle isn't going to make a heart of stone believe, right? They They were saying, well, if you could just do one more, you know, the scribes and the Pharisees and uh, and uh, and the same thing here was on display so uh, so I I think the warning passages are you know uh, can be a lot to handle but we have these two things uh, happening uh, in my in the text here and that is uh, the Lord preserving his people by, by exhorting his people to be faithful, to hold on to his promises.